on air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, a close look at the amount of seismic testing in waters off Tasmania. Now, I wouldn't mind seeing an oil executive get into his budgie smugglers, jump in the bath, and we'll put 2,000 PSI in there with a five-inch hose, and we'll give it to him in the bath and see what he thinks. And that's a human being. A, a little thylacine, which is probably, you know, a mil or two mil long, I, I just don't see how that can survive. And covering the cherry orchard is the way of the future. Covering fruit moving forward is, is definitely um, something you're seeing worldwide. You can get 95% of the fruit in the box and your firmness and, and uh, quality parameters go up. Yeah, we visit a cherry orchard in the south of the state to see how the covering works and the role of covering the crops into the future. Plus the overload of seismic testing in Bass Strait. That story coming up for you in just a moment. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this midweek Wednesday, which does mean Richard Boney will be along later in the program with the details of the latest Powerana livestock sale. Also today, the Marine Stewardship Council has released its inaugural report into the waters around the country, covering the last two decades and the changes seen since the year 2000. We will take a check of the weather as well. Looks pretty good where I am. Hope it's uh, sunshining where you are, maybe getting uh, those chores done out on the farm. It's that sort of day, even if you do need a bit of rain. There might be some on the way, though. We'll find out more from the Bureau. And we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line. 0438 922 is that number. 0438 922 First up today, for years, Bass Strait has been blasted and drilled by multinational companies hoping to make a buck out of the precious energy resources buried under the sea floor. Boaters, environmentalists, surfers and fishers in particular have repeatedly raised their voices in concern for how the activities might affect their livelihoods. But they say they feel powerless against the might of the enormous overseas company and a perceived lack of support from the Australian government. Beck Pridham has the story. Danny Fox has spent most of his career working the waters surrounding King Island off Tasmania's northwest coast. I'm a second generation fisherman. The boat's been in the family for 50 years. But he's not the only one interested in the region. In recent years, energy giants have pursued the Otway, Bass and Gippsland basins between Victoria and Tasmania. Before exploring for gas or oil, companies map the seafloor by sending loud blasts from powerful air guns, a process called seismic surveying. It's been found to daze and potentially kill lobster populations. It's really the thylacoma stage when they're in the larvae stage, which is when they're most vulnerable. Now, I wouldn't mind seeing an oil executive get into his budgie smugglers, jump in the bath, and we'll put 2,000 PSI in there with a five-inch hose, and we'll give it to him in the bath and see what he thinks. And that's a human being. A a little thylacoma, which is probably, you know, a mil or two mil long, I I just don't see how that can survive. Danny says the problem is fishermen don't know how destructive it is until it's too late, at least five years down the track. Those boats are absolutely done their work and they're sailed over the horizon, gone somewhere else, and... You know, we're left holding the baby that we, we, we might have no recruitment from a fishery, which was which, which not our fault. One of the latest proposals by multinationals TGS and SLB involves plans to blast within a 45,000 square kilometre zone west of King Island. Two years ago, ConocoPhillips blasted further east in the same basin and the company is now proposing to drill. The fisherman says he's exhausted by the number and the frequency of projects cropping up. 
The problem with all the seismic testing is it's different companies going over the same bit of bottom, up and down, year in, year out. The only thing that changes is the name that's on the permit. But he says they're playing by the rules. It's tiring. It's just all the time there's, honestly, there's that many surveys. You see another survey come through on the email and you look at it and you go, oh, just... You know, you, you don't even make comment for it anymore because they're just about go-ahead anyway. It's just an absolute given that, you know, they, they're going to jump through all the hoops. A fish does rot from the head first, and, they, and, and the brains of the whole operation here is in Canberra, and it's in the permit conditions that they set for these companies. The fatigue is widespread across the fishing industry, according to Seafood Industry Tasmania Chief Executive Julian Harrington. Just this continuous threat of activity in their backyard, in the, in, in the marine environment that they rely on to harvest, sustainably harvest a renewable resource. And, and like anything, if, if you get bombarded for even six months, it's hard work to get bombarded for seven or eight years is, is, is push people to the point of losing interest. Their eyes glaze over, they, they go, what's the point? Uh, the, the government approved these things anyway, so what's the point wasting time and energy trying to fight it? Danny Fox wants companies to be more transparent with their data so others can use the information and avoid further surveying. The Tasmanian Fishing Industry Council agrees. Basic seismic data is made public after three years from the end of the survey, but some information can stay confidential for 15 years. It's not just fishermen that are concerned about seismic blasting. Environmentalists are too. The Australian Marine Conservation Society says the effect is far-reaching. There's no aspect of marine life which isn't impacted. It's just that we actually have so little research, we don't know how bad it is. That's campaign manager Louise Morris. Seismic blasting is incredibly harmful to the foundation of our ocean food web. So that's you know, plankton, which is krill, all those tiny little species which literally get pulverised when seismic blasting is done within a couple of kilometres of them. And you need to remember that plankton is actually the base of the food web for the ocean. One animal that feeds off her is the endangered blue whale. That's their food source gone. And she says it doesn't just affect their mealtime. And then we get up into the top end of the food chain when we're starting to think about whales and dolphins who rely on their ears to navigate, to communicate and to find food. And seismic blasting... Is it's 250 decibels, which is kind of impossible to imagine when you're, you know, talking about numbers. But underwater, it's about the equivalent of twice a jet plane. And seismic scientists say the best correlation you can do for seismic blasting in water and what it does is to your eardrums is that it's louder than a bomb, which, when you think about it, is is horrendous. While no one's being able to test seismic blasting on an animal as large as a blue whale because a little bit hard to monitor and catch. Smaller cetaceans such as dolphins have been found to have hemorrhaged eardrums and organ damage when near seismic blasting in other parts of the world as well. The ABC asked Resources Minister Madeleine King's office if the government would tighten rules to prevent companies surveying the same areas or toughen permit criteria to better consider cumulative impacts. They did not directly respond. They said due to advancements in technology and equipment design, it was sometimes necessary to survey over areas where data had previously been acquired. They said the Department of Industry, Science and Resources was examining options to revise data management provisions. Beck Pridham with that story on the cumulative impact of years of energy projects in the waters around King Island in Bass Strait. You heard from lobster fisher Danny Fox, Tasmanian Seafood Industry Council Chief Executive Julian Harrington, and the Australian Marine Conservation Society's Louise Morris.
The Marine Stewardship Council has launched its inaugural report looking at two decades of progress in Australian fisheries since the year 2000. The MSC is an international not-for-profit organisation which sets globally recognised standards for sustainable fishing and the seafood supply chain. And Gabriel is the MSC Program Director covering Australia, New Zealand and Singapore. She explains what they wanted to achieve from the inaugural report. So this report specifically um, assesses and analyzes the outcomes of only the certified fisheries in Australia. But it's a really good reflection of the state of waters in Australia in general because um, in Australia we have over half of our fisheries uh, by volume certified to the international MSCs fishery standards. Are we talking about in terms of number of fisheries? We're talking about 28 certified fisheries, but the diversity of the species for the seafood is also um, extremely remarkable. We're talking about 38 certified species um, in Australia. So it's quite a diverse range at the same time. Or what have you noticed as part of this report that has changed or improved since the, the year 2000? Yeah, so a lot of these fisheries, when they embark on the assessment program to be certified by the MSC, well, the MSC provides the, you know, the science-based benchmark for sustainable fishing. A lot of these fisheries, all these fisheries, are audited by third-party assessment bodies. We call them the conformity assessment bodies. So it's very independent, it's credible, and MSC is impartial. We provide the international science-based standard, but the fisheries are then audited by third-party auditors. So when the fisheries go through the assessment process, which typically takes around 12 to 18 months, and in that time, if they're successfully certified, people think that's the end of their commitment to its sustainability. On the contrary, it's only the beginning of their journey towards sustainability and continuous improvement. The reason for that is our ocean is, you know, as we know, extremely uh, changing in its uh, diversity, its vibrance, but also due to the impact of external factors like warming water and climate change, etc. So every five years, these fisheries need to be reassessed again um, and then to be recertified. But in between that five years, every year they are being audited. So there's a lot of scrutiny, a lot of transparency, information disclosure that these this fisheries are expected to comply with once they are certified. And at the end of that, we see what the improvements are. So this report, which is a Fishing for the Future report, actually quantifies what's the difference we've seen in terms of stock health. That's one of the key principles in terms of sustainable fishing, is we look into a fisheries performance in terms of that particular species and how the stock health has improved over the time. The second principle that we look into is how these fisheries have improved in terms of their fishing operations and their interactions with the ecosystem. Now, that's a big word, but really typically that means is what have the fisheries done in terms of modifying their gears or their methods in terms of how they interact with um, endangered, threatened, protected species. So, for example, just to give you an idea, um, the first fishery in the entire world that was MSC certified was the Western Rock Lobster Fishery in WA. And in the last few decades, they've successfully maintained their certification, which is a exemplary uh, effort on their part, both in terms of the state government's effort as well as the fishing industry as well. One of the things they've done out of many innovations is, for example, they've modified their pots and the traps you know, in which they catch the lobster with what they call a sea lion exclusion device. So that sea lion exclusion device is just make sure, make sure that juvenile sea lions, for example, are not being trapped by those, those gear methods, but they're only catching lobster. 
I mean, that's one example. Another example is the Commonwealth Managed Fishery in the Eastern Tuna and Billfish Fishery in Queensland. They also, through the years since their certification in 2015, have implemented an electronic monitoring system. Now, what does this do? This helps them kind of look at how they're tracking and monitoring any kind of interactions with, you know, other endangered threatened protected species. In this instance, it's certain types of sharks and turtles. Um, and so we've got lots of examples like this that's showcased in the report, which we hope brings to life not just the certification process, but the, really the meaningful changes that we're seeing being contributed by the industry on our Australian waters. And Gabrielle, when you talk about um, the, the bluefish tick, uh, the, the eco-label, when, can you explain what that is for the, those that might not know, but also where that sits when it comes to what fisheries are doing to improve their sustainability and what they are doing and continuing to do moving forward? The MSC bluefish tick is not just a, a, a nice-looking label that sits on the end of consumer products on the supermarket shelves. It is really an empowering choice for businesses who are wanting to source sustainable seafood. It's also an empowering choice for consumers. And we know that Australian consumers, through our own consumer research, is telling us every year that they're feeling really helpless um, and they really want to play their part to protect our oceans. So when they're going out there and shopping, whether it's a you know little canned tuna or whether it's, you know, um, lots of the wet fish counters of corals or prawns, they want to make the right decision. So by choosing the bluefish stick, they're not just choosing sustainable seafood. They really are incentivizing many of these fisheries that you will see indicated in this Fishing for the Future report to continue to do the right thing. So while the fishing industry is coming forward and the government is coming forward to do the right thing, and get the fisheries certified to the MSC's fishery standard. It is imperative that businesses and consumers are also making the right choice at the end of the supply chain because this will just keep incentivizing them to do the right thing because it's all about continuous improvement as well. So it's really what we call the theory of change is this full circle where it's not just all about the fishing industry or the government's doing the right thing. It's about how the conservation community, NGOs, play their part as part of the assessment process. It's about how scientists and academia engaged as well. It's how businesses are doing the right thing with their sourcing policies. And at the end of that loop, it's about how, you know, Aussies like you and I are doing the right thing, whether we're eating in a restaurant or shopping in a supermarket. So it's really a theory of change which has which closes the loop once we make that choice. That's Anne Gabriel, the MSC Program Director for the Marine Stewardship Council, which covers Australia, New Zealand and Singapore, speaking there with Brooke Neindorf about their sustainable fishing report, first one since the year 2000. And uh, you can look it up online at the Marine Stewardship Council website. Coming up in just a moment, we'll hear from a Ukraine dairy worker. Each weekend, catch Landline on ABC TV. Our goal is to put an end to petroleum plastic. It's a national yarn about people who work on the land. I think we can share the ideas together. Hosted by award-winning journalist Pip Courtney. It involves harvesting a byproduct of honey production. Landline is Australia's only agricultural TV show covering stories from Australia's rural and regional heartland. It's good to connect and be out on country. Landline, Sundays at 12.30 on ABC TV and iview. 
On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listen app. This is The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A couple of text liners here. JP says, G'day, outdated seismic blasting is cheap. If they have to do it, why aren't government and the companies not considering Aquavib marine vibration? Thanks for that, JP. And also we've got another one here from uh, Sherry in the Huon Valley. Hi, Tony. Thanks for highlighting the David and Goliath battle between locals on the northwest coast and King Island and the multinational gas industries. Uh, we volunteers with day jobs can't compete with them year after year after year. Thanks for that, Sheree. Well, tractors and protesters have taken to streets of irrigation communities in southern New South Wales to show their opposition to the proposed water buybacks for the Murray-Darling Basin. Legislation before the Senate extends deadlines for the plan and will allow the government to purchase water from irrigators to meet the 450 gigalitre target for additional environmental water. Organisers say a 1,000 people turned out in Griffith yesterday to protest the move, with 600 in both Leeton and Daniloquin. This report from Griffith begins as the tractors travel down the main street. Glenn Andreazzo, Griffith City Councillor, uh, irrigator, farmer and uh, also branch president of New South Wales uh, Griffith Local Branch. Previous waterback buybacks impacted myself and the local community very heavily. Uh, we feel we've only just recovered from the last 10 years of buybacks and now to potentially have another major buyback coming at us, it's going to be fairly devastating. People are just about over the fight. We've, we've, they've lost confidence. They've lost confidence in the government that they're going to do the right thing. They think they're just going to come along and take it without any consultation, without any any remorse on what could be left behind or what could happen. So people are tired and people really don't, they're, they're sick of fighting. This is about Griffith, this is about Daniloquin, this is about Leeton, this is about Collie Ambley, it's about businesses, it's about farmers. Ultimately, this is about Australia's food and fibre security. My name's John Bizzetto, I own a horticulture property 17 kilometres north of Griffith. It's all irrigated. I've been farming for 30 years. How, how are you feeling about the potential return of buybacks and how will it impact you and your, and your property? Monty, it's been really hard to stay calm because I have a sick, sickening feeling in my gut. That's how, because I've just, we've been through this for so long, so many times. You get a bit despondent thinking nobody's listening. That's the problem. Water is life. We're stuck here with a land that'll have no water after. We can't grow a crop. We've got land that's worthless. It's, it's going to hurt everyone, not just the farmers. It's, it's a flow-on effect. Every single person, every shop in this town, everyone message to the city that our regions will not be destroyed. Simon Benetti, we've just got through the last one with you know the downturn and, and forced water prices up. Um, just going to make it so difficult for farming. Uh, you know, force, all it does is force the price of temporary water up, forces the price of uh, permanent water up and you take something out of the community, you take water out of anything. Um, it's going to have effect not only on the local farmers but the whole whole of Griffith really. If farmers are making less money, um, all the business in town, machinery dealers, uh, chemical fertiliser companies, uh, even as far as house pricing and that, all drops. Um, but then the bigger issue is, uh, you know, shutting the town down. You know, people leave. Um, Schools start closing, hospital closes. You know, I've got two young children. Um, 
one of them is very keen on farming, I, I want a future for him. Yeah, Jeremy Cass. And Jeremy, you're with the Riverina Wine Grape Growers? Yes, that's correct. I represent 270 odd wine grape growers, uh, independent wine grape growers in this region. And how is the potential return of buybacks going to impact those wine grape growers? It's a funny thing for us. It's a bit of a conundrum because we're getting in such a bad spot at the moment. I know a lot of my members would love to have a wider buyback so they can get out of the industry with dignity. But that being said, you know, I back to the words of John Oxley when he came through here uh, all those 200 odd years ago and said that it was a desolate place that wasn't suitable for civilised habitation. So, you know, that's, a, that's the difference of what water can make to this area. So, um, yeah. And then. If that option does come and all those wine grape growers decide to take those buybacks, what impact is that going to have on the industry? It's going to have a huge impact on the industry and on the region. You know, that, that's the flow and effect of that. People won't be able to buy that water back to grow grapes because of the price of it. So, um, yeah, it's going to put a squeeze on the industry and push people out of town. Wineries are going to be struggling to fill their tanks. You know, I listened to Tanya Plibersek saying that you know, we've got voluntary sellers out there, and, and that is correct, but those voluntary sellers wouldn't be so voluntary if the price of the produce that they were producing was making money for them. And we'll keep the pressure on the government to change this bad policy. Thank you. Yeah, one of the speakers had the organ, organised protest there in the Riverina protesting about the proposed water buybacks from the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Thanks to Emily Doak, Monty Jacker and Connor Burke for that particular report. Well, half a world away from his home, Ukrainian Alexander Lysov is forging ahead with a career in the dairy industry on a farm in southwest Victoria. Now, a field services advisor with dairy processor Saputo, he came to Australia five years ago to work on a dairy farm after a chance discovery on a Ukrainian jobs website. Angus Furley spoke with him about his career, which has taken him around the world. It was a very long way for me. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to start from the beginning. When I finished uh, university in Ukraine, I went to Denmark uh, and I started to work at the dairy farm. That was my first connection to the dairy industry. And then after, I decided to come back to my country, to Ukraine. When I came back, I found a job as a field service advisor in uh, Danone company. That's another um, big uh, dairy processor. And uh, I started to look for a, a dairy job uh, abroad again. I almost gave up, but one day I just was uh, searching the um, one of the uh, jobs search website in Ukraine. And it was Ukrainian uh, website. It wasn't even the uh, foreign website. So when I found uh, advertising of dairy farm job uh, in Australia, I thought it was a joke. I, I thought it was a scam. Anyway, I decided to apply just, you know, uh, just for fun. And uh, in half a year, I would say four months, half a year, uh, I got my visa and I came to Australia, started to work at the dairy farm. Okay, so that was 2018 that you came. Uh, talk me through what you've been up to since then. So, yeah, in the end of 2018, uh, I started to work at a dairy farm uh, near the Warnable in Woolsorp. 
1,300 cows. And then in two years, uh, I got the role as a, a second in charge at that farm. I got my residency in the beginning of 2023. And uh, I decided to study because I finally could uh, study. Uh, so, and I choose the course bookkeeping and accounting at the Southwest States. Uh, I started my course and in a couple of months, uh, I found uh, the job in Sapporo. Okay, so once you got your residency, you, you didn't have those work restrictions and you, and you could have gone into another sector, but you were keen to stay in the dairy industry? Definitely, yeah, because I have a lot of experience here and I, I just wanted to help uh, the farmers, to work close to the dairy farmers and help them with my knowledge. Where you are in Australia, southwest Victoria, it's a, a lush, uh, green, high rainfall part of the world, and I understand very much different to what your uh, impressions of Australia were when you were back in Ukraine. Ah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, well, before I came here, I saw that, yeah, the Australia is just a desert everywhere, very hot, you know, uh, and uh, the yellow grass everywhere. So, yeah, when I came to Warnable first time, uh, I was uh, just shocked. And what's it like having worked in both the Australian and Ukrainian dairy industries? I, I suppose, what are the differences between the two? I would say uh, the weather, because in Ukraine we have all four seasons. And uh, during the cold season, during the uh, winter, we have uh well quite quite cold winters we have snow uh, and it's quite fr- uh, like a, you know freezing a freezing cold there so uh and uh this way th- that's why we cannot keep our uh cows on the paddocks so we don't usually use the paddocks system uh in ukraine we keep our cows in the freestyle barns in ukraine all the time whole year and they are on uh, total mixed ration uh and uh, yeah it was a new experience for me uh when i came here uh and i found out that in victoria you know in southwest victoria most of the farmers are using the paddock system and the cows are grazing the paddocks 365 uh, days per year what's your experience been as a ukrainian in australia since i suppose early last year when there, when russia invaded ukraine what's been the reaction with the local people the local people are very supportive here and they support me and uh, uh, and my family uh, and they, they always asking if I have a family and I still have a family there in Ukraine uh, on the occupied uh, by Russians uh, territory. So anyway, they always asking, they always asking for help, you know, if, if I need help. Uh, so the, the local community is very supportive. It, it was hard uh, for me and for my family here uh, to go through uh, uh, this war because it, it, that's terrible, just terrible. And we are really worried about the people in Ukraine. So the community is very supportive here in Australia. What does the future hold? And do you see your long-term future being in Australia? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we are planning to apply for citizenship uh, in the beginning of uh, next year. Yeah, we definitely want to uh, stay in Australia. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, continuing to study. And clearly you're you're very committed to your academic studies in Australia. And as well, we should say, I understand that you came to Australia with a master's degree in mechanical engineering in agriculture. But uh, unfortunately, the, the challenge that many people from other countries as well face, that it's not recognised in Australia? 
that's a bit of issue. Yeah, I went through the university. I, I you know, I studied there for five and a half years and got my diploma. And now uh, here in Australia, I cannot use it. There is a, a dairy workforce shortage in Australia, but, but clearly you've got abundant passion for it. So uh, what would you say to people contemplating enter, entering the industry? I want to say that it's a great industry. There is a future for this industry, industry anyway, because the population of the, not only in Australia, but the population in the world is growing. And, you know, every year became more and more people in the earth. So we need to feed these people somehow. And uh, the agriculture and their industry, it is very important industry. And, you know, we are bringing, uh, we are giving the food, the food for, uh, for our people. That was Alexander Lisov, originally from Ukraine, who's now made his home in southwest Victoria, talking there to Angus Verley about the dairy industry. Still to come on today's edition of The Country Hour, the cherry orchard showing the way of the future. Richard Bailey will have the latest on the livestock markets and a check on the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. And in breaking news, the Israeli cabinet has approved a deal with Hamas that includes the release of some 50 hostages held by militants in exchange for a four-day ceasefire. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had been meeting with the War Cabinet and ministers late into the evening and they eventually voted to approve the agreement. The 50 hostages held by Hamas will be released over four days during which fighting will be paused. An Australian Transport Safety Bureau report into a helicopter crash that killed Outback Wrangler star Chris Willow-Wilson has found the aircraft likely ran out of fuel. Tasmanian Health Minister Guy Barnett says the state's fourth urgent care clinic will help more Tasmanians get care in the right place. My Clinic Plus was today announced at the provider for the Devonport Clinic in the state's northwest. It's expected to start seeing patients on December the 11th, providing bulk build walk-in care to divert patients away from emergency departments. And the reigning winners of both the overall and line honours trophies will defend their Sydney Hobart yacht race crowns when the 78th edition of the race sets sail on Boxing Day. This year's race was officially launched today with Super Maxi Comanche and TP52 Celestial, both among the 113 confirmed starters. More news at one. Let's check the latest on the weather now. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. Any, any rainfall anywhere? Uh, yeah, we have. Um, we, the 24-hour totals to 9am this morning. There were a few lightish falls around the east. The top was at Llewellyn, which is in the South Hesse catchment. They had 14 millimetres. St. Pat's Head had 11. And the town, as for populated places, uh, Fingal had 6, Bishano 5 and St. Helens 2. All right. Uh, outlook. And now it's a beautiful day. Uh, conditions like that everywhere? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a bit cloudy around the east. There's still some lingering um, low cloud there and, and parts of the north a bit more cloudy there. But the rest of the state's very sunny and it's looking like continuing similarly like, like that, like these settled conditions till Friday. Friday will be our warmest day with, uh, for instance, uh, I think 28 for, for is forecast for Launceston, uh, 25 for Hobart on that day, so quite warm on Friday. On the weekend, we're going to get some showers as a trough comes down from, from Victoria. Roughly or likely sort of rainfall around, we're going to have about 10 to 20 millimetres about the north and the east for Saturday, um, ranging to light falls about the southwest, and then it will continue on. The trough doesn't move real quick 
on Sunday, we're looking at about 10 to 20 millimetres about the northwest and the southeast and 5 to 10 millimetres elsewhere. So a bit of a wet weekend. There's also the possibility of some higher falls on Saturday with thunderstorms about the north. Okay. Now, warnings to Michael. What have we got? Absolutely nothing. There. Such light winds and no other weather around to speak of, so nothing. <laughs> right. And the coastal waters and swell. I imagine it's pretty good out there. Yeah, so we've got uh, south to southwesterly winds for today, 10 to 20 knots in the west and the south, south to southeasterly elsewhere, um, but and easing to variable winds, 5 to 10 knots in the northeast in the evening. Tomorrow, south to southwesterly, 10 to 20 knots in the south, southeast to easterly winds elsewhere around the state. Um, the swell's about in the west and south today, southwesterly swell, 2.5 to 3.5 metres, 2 to 3 metres tomorrow. Uh, a confused swell less than one metre in the north for both days and for for both days in the east, uh, a southerly swell of one to one and a half metres getting up to two to three metres southwest, uh, southwestly two to three metres in the south. There's also a very light northeasterly swell about for both days. And only one wave rider still? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, we're still still out there, Mariah Island, unfortunately. Cape Sorrel, 2.4 metres right at the moment. Thank you, Michael. Cheers, Tony. Have a good one. You too. Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the expected weather. Uh, we'll hear from the uh, the Agriculture Minister, Federal Agriculture Minister, his thoughts on supermarket pricing in just a moment. It takes two, baby. It takes two, baby. It takes two to give away two tickets to Tubular Bells for two. For me and you. Hi, I'm Rick Goddard. And I'm Lucy Braden. Join Rick Goddard and I each day on Breakfast and Drive. And it takes two to give away two tickets to Tubular Bells for two. The Theatre Royal. Be listening to Breakfast. And Drive. For your chance to win two tickets for two. To Tubular Bells for two. On the 2th of December. It takes two, baby. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has welcomed the call from the National Farmers Federation for more transparency in the way supermarkets set their pricing. Speaking on ABC Statewide Mornings in Tasmania, the Minister was asked about the role of the Federal Government in monitoring how prices are set. I'm pleased that the National Farmers Federation have joined these calls as well. I've actually been calling on the supermarkets to drop their prices for livestock for about three months now, uh, and I'm pleased um, that that is beginning to happen. Uh, Woolies have decided a couple of weeks ago to cut their lamb prices across a range of products by about 20% in the run-up to Christmas. Some of the other chains are looking at doing the same thing, um, but we can't just rely on those kind of promises. One of the things we have started uh, as the federal government is a review of what's called the Food and Grocery Code, and that basically looks at the level of transparency and the commercial dealings between the retailers their suppliers, their wholesalers, to make sure that people aren't unreasonably profiting. And I think your average Australian is scratching their head wondering why if a farmer is getting so little for their livestock, why are we paying so much? Of course, you know, there are costs that are incurred between the farm and a, and a product going on sale at the supermarket, um, but I think the supermarket should be doing more and I'm hopeful that that review will play a role in that as well. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt talking about the way supermarkets set their pricing and the role the government plays in the issue. He was speaking there to Leon Compton. Floods, droughts and a global nut glut. 
the last few years have been some of the toughest on record for Australia's 800 macadamia nut growers. Returns now well below the cost of production. Some have also chosen to call it quits and exit the industry. But Australian Macadamia Society CEO Claire Hamilton-Bate has told Jennifer Nichols she's confident there is a light at the end of the tunnel for the industry. We've had a very tough couple of seasons. Australia's crop was down 20% on where we forecast at the beginning of the season. The majority of growers have got through the season, some making decisions perhaps not to harvest all their crop, uh, individual commercial decisions. But overall, certainly the feel on the ground is that there is light at the end of that tunnel. The sell-through and a lot of nut has gone offshore as nut in shell this season and far less to kernel. Uh, And that's had implications because it's created problems in servicing long-established kernel markets. But overall, demand is strong and I think the outlook is looking increasingly positive, much more positive going to next season. We're not at a point we can yet forecast a crop for next season. Flowering's finished, there's nut set, but it's not until sort of early into the new year we start making those forecasts of the crop for the coming 2024 season. How did we get in this mess? It was a whole combination of factors and the world crop overall is increasing exponentially. Although it seems strange to bring it up three years on, but the COVID impact on markets worldwide, particularly on the ingredients and incorporation and the use of styles of macadamia that are not the snacking styles which move so quickly. It's a whole combination of factors. It's obviously for the industry and for individual growers and for individual handlers and processors as well been a devastating couple of years. But the way out is good productivity and maximising yields of farm and the demand creation activities that we need both here domestically and in export markets and there's a whole lot of that happening at the moment. Our cost of production is so much higher in Australia than overseas though where millions of trees have been planted. It is but we're also looking at where we can maximise efficiencies on farm, automation opportunities on farm so that the road ahead it's probably quite a different industry landscape as we've got to be super efficient, we've got to be super productive and then we have to create that demand for Australian macadamias. Have many people left the industry? Anecdotally there are trees coming out I don't have numbers up here, but certainly down in the northern rivers, there are a lot of trees coming out, some for replanting in a period of downturn, others with people choosing to leave the industry, and generally that's smaller growers for whom the economics just don't stack up. But at the same time, there's a lot of planting still happening in larger plantations, so it's a mixture. It is something that the industry has gone through before, perhaps not to this scale, but they have had a bust before. They have, and it is a cyclical thing, and that's never easy to say when you're the business in the situation at the point in time. Um, I'm very confident. I know a lot of the industry is very confident. Um, Macadamias are such a tiny percentage of world tree nut production. We're just on 2%. There are so many opportunities and it's such a great product. And that's the narrative both in the domestic market and in export markets that we've been pushing over the last six months. So what's being done to drive demand? We've had some great initiatives launched. You would have seen coverage of the uh, launch of Australian macadamias into the Indian market. That was in Mumbai. So the inaugural Australian macadamia festival run over two weeks with some high-end restaurants with a beautiful launch of a 16-course degustation menu featuring macadamias all the way through, and I was fortunate enough to be able to attend that. We had folk there, such as the CEO of Reliance Supermarkets. Now, that's the equivalent of having the CEO of Coles and Woolworths sit down to dinner. And the follow-up and engagement from those folk, from social media influencers, from chefs and restaurants was fabulous. We also had some great trade activity, showing people how to utilise and, importantly, how to handle and store macadamias in, in a very different environment. So the huge 
huge amount of momentum, invites to Indian activities, in market activities early in the new year. And all of that was funded through the Queensland Government, through the Food and Fibre to Market program. So we're so grateful for that because that adds to the levy funding that the marketing programs run under that allowed us to do so much more in India this year. Even though you might say, well, not everyone in India is going to eat macadamias, but even if you take a tiny percentage of higher socioeconomic folk, there's a huge market there. The other thing that's really exciting is the current domestic market campaign. Um, Hopefully your listeners will have seen some coverage of macadamias, be it on the billboards outside major retail supermarkets, through independent retail. Um, We've got a feature in Australian's Women's Weekly and some great coverage. We actually had a dinner with Matt Moran at his beautiful restaurant down in Sydney. So hopefully if you haven't already get behind that there's a great recipe book for christmas on the australian macadamias website and please just get involved claire hamilton Bate, australian macadamian society ceo speaking there to jen nichols about the state of the macadamia nut industry in this country well good news we're only about a month away from the first cherries of the summer season hopefully some of the early varieties will be ready just before christmas One of the big orchards is at Jericho in the southern Midlands and it produces cherries for later in the season, hoping to cash in on Chinese New Year. Andrew Hall, the manager of Reed Fruits Honeywood Orchard, has told Fiona Breen the big green house on the property is boosting the crop each year. It is a game changer. I mean, we can can set twice as much fruit under there as we can outside and that's simply by controlling those environmental factors or having complete environmental control. Covering fruit moving forward is is definitely um, something you're seeing worldwide. You can get 95% of the fruit in the box and your firmness and and, uh, quality parameters go up um, with the right management obviously. but it it's, it's definitely means you know we don't have to grow grow acres and acres and acres of, of orchard we can we can get more fruit and do a better job on on a smaller amount of land so in a way that helps you target i guess target areas uh, where there's quality land and you don't need as much is reed fruit thinking of any more of these retractable greenhouses anywhere certainly um, i mean that one's a rolls royce product and you know, as you know, back then there was some uh, government ir- innovation grants getting around and we applied for one and that helped um, part fund that project and we had milestones to report back on. But moving forward, I think in a practical sense for most growers, including us, um, and we've been pushing right from the start with the, the manufacturers of that to, to come up with a fully automated version, which is a is a lighter weight structure so it's not going to give you full climate control but it will give you essential control of things like rain uh, wind uh, frost of course and minimize damage from those those things yeah so there might be some investment in in one of those somewhere in your your orchards we're actually uh, i mean the huon's notorious for for a bit of rain around um, december january particularly as we seem to see more of these easterly patterns working their way down the east coast. Um, well, I wouldn't say climate change, but it just seems to be a little bit more prevalent. And we've seen that before in the 80s. It, it was quite an issue with rain pushing up in the hill. So having covers down the Huon is a, it's going to be a game changer for us too. And yes, so we've got a, we've got a, it's a new version or the lightweight version, I like to call it. It's sort of a Cravo Mark II, which... Um, we're actually pricing up at the moment and looking at a block down there to, to give that a run on. Yeah. 
Are you looking at different varieties uh, in any of your orchards? We've got the market fairly well covered from about the f- oh, say mid-December through to mid-February and we've traditionally been heavy in January, the whole industry has been in Tasmania, we, we have a peak of fruit at that time and if the Chinese New Year's late you know in the past it's it's been difficult to cover that volume that's the reason why we came to Jericho because the elevation gives us 14 days later than the plenty farm growing the same varieties but what we're finding is that there's a strong demand both domestically and export for um, high quality Tasmanian fruit prior to Christmas so looking at at early varieties and, and the trouble has always been with early varieties is firmness because they're just a shorter growing season and finding genetics that's, um, that gives us uh, high quality for export um, pre-Christmas or even sort of from late November through to Christmas time is what we're doing um, so we can sort of flatten our curve out or supply curve out a bit more and take that hump out of it. So you've just been to Chile, did you get some ideas of any early varieties? Oh certainly, I mean we've got to keep looking, part of the reason was to have a look at um, growing systems and seeing what they're up to but they're picking fruit right as we speak and um, they've been been exporting into China for probably two weeks. They do have some, some interesting genetics over there which they're, they're trying to uh, develop um, and fill that gap as well so they can get premium prices even even well before you know sort of um, early November. So you might be looking at some of those yourself? We've got to keep um, keep our ear to the ground we've already got a little bit of um, IP in um, some varieties from overseas that we see some potential in yeah. So Reed Fruits is renovating revamping looking at covering so investing in the current orchards? Yep yeah, look, the oldest blocks are, I think, 23 years old now at, at the Plenty Farm. We moved out of Apples 18 months ago, and that's all been um, renovated um, now, and it's all replanted with cherries. And part of that reason for, for replanting over there is um, we've got varieties there that are... That, that, that 23 years ago, they were, that was what was available. They were reasonable varieties, but we're finding now they don't quite cut the mustard for export. Andrew Hall is the manager of Reed Fruits Honeywood Orchard up at uh, Jericho or down at Jericho, wherever you are in the state or east or west, talking to Fiona Breen about the unique cherry farm where the trees are covered and uh, protected well from all aspects of the weather. Don't forget to go to our ABC Rural page. Plenty of great stories on there as well and our ABC Rural Facebook page where you can have a look at uh, some of the the great pics and some of the great stories. In a moment, we shall have Richard Bailey on the program with the latest on the livestock markets. We are one. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 
Well, time on a Wednesday afternoon to head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. How are you travelling, Richard? Going well, Tony. Lovely bit of weather we're having. Oh, I think most people would like a bit of rain. They tell me there's a little bit of rain forecast. Yeah, yeah, a little bit coming. Um, but it's uh, yeah, just enjoy the weather while you can, I suppose. Uh, lots of people doing lots of things. Give, gives you a, a chance to do uh, things like preparing for the bushfire season and, uh, you know, cleaning up on farm, yeah. whatever you're going to yeah. do. Yeah, all that sort of thing, yeah, yeah. All right, mate, yeah. uh, power runner yesterday, how did it go? Uh, a few less cattle um, and not as good a quality as last week. There are only 57 trade and grown cattle. The market was generally cheaper right across the board. Um, in fact, some of the heavy cows were up to 15 cents cheaper. And as I said, the quality wasn't as good as what we have been having. Most yearling steers made 202 to 228 cents. Heifers, 202 to 216 cents. Better quality grown steers, 208 to 230 cents. Uh, the best of those went to butchers. And then plainer quality, 174 to 182 cents a kilo. Some of them were pretty big as well. Um, as I said, heavy cows were cheaper. Best of the heavy cows went 130 to 164 cents. And then restockers bought light uh, lean cows for 66 to, nine, to 110 cents a kilo. So a little bit disappointing, I thought, you know, after last week's sort of better sale and good quality. Yeah. And there's a store cattle sale next week, is it? Next week, yep, next week. Uh, 11 o'clock start, that's on the 30th. Should be some good, quite good cattle around, I reckon, by then. I haven't got numbers, but uh, I reckon we will on Friday. Um, quite good numbers, I reckon. Now, lamb and sheep. Similar numbers, uh, well, almost no mutton, but similar number of lambs, 1,284 lambs. The vast majority now in New Seasons lambs, and we had a much better line-up in New Seasons lambs. Remember, you might remember last week uh, we basically didn't have any killable lambs in the in the New Seasons lots. Uh, yesterday we did. The heavier pens, <coughs> excuse me, the heavier pens made 114 to 126 dollars a head. Uh, trade weights 84 to 100 dollars. Light trade. 53 to 90, and then light lambs 52 to 60. They all went to processors. Then restockers bought light lambs from 28 to 62 dollars, and light trade 68 to 72 dollars. Now the one thing, and we've been banging on about this year after year, but the one thing was really obvious yesterday: any shorn lambs, and these are new season shorn lambs. The, the restockers paid an absolute premium for them. You know, I mean, I'm talking ten, fifteen, twenty dollars more than their counterparts. So, please, if you if you don't reckon you can finish the lambs, I reckon you want to get a shearer in very quickly. They're only seventy five mutton, Tony. So I don't think we'll talk about them. Okay, but I can't let you go without saying we're only a few steps away from greatness in our families. You're one little step away from the great George. What a, what an effort the selector of the Australian cricket team, winners of the World Cup. Uh, it was a great great win, wasn't it? Great win, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, obviously, the players take great credit. I think the selectors have got to take some great credit. They, You know, they stuck with Travis Head when he was, in, when he was injured. You know, they could have easily gone the other way. Um, you know, look, great effort. I thought it was, you know, people would say that 50-over cricket might be dead. I can't see how that could be. No. It was a terrific, there was a terrific series, I thought. I you know, yeah. I, 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 my age, I can't stay up all night, but I've seen a lot of very good cricket. A very proud Uncle Richard. <laughs> <laughs> talk to you Friday. Yeah, there he goes. Richard Bailey, he'll check the mainland markets when we talk next. And we'll catch you on the country out after midday tomorrow.